0: Welcome to the Only You Podcast. is your host, Lo Jackson. This is the month of June. It's Alzheimer's Brain Awareness Month, and we're doing William James for our author this month. This podcast is a podcast to encourage people to read more, learn more. I love to do psychology. I love um, biology. I love physiology and all these different types of biologies out there. <clears throat> My last two podcasts by William James, I did... Um, Uh, pragmatism, my first one and then the second one, the meaning of truth and those actually um, coincide each other pretty well they reciprocate each other really well Um, William James was actually the founder of Harvard Psychology his belief in the connection between mind and body led him to, to develop what has become known as the James Lang Theory and I'm not sure if any of you know what the James Lang Theory is, but it's um, it puts the human experience of emotions in a group that says they arise from physiological changes in response to external events, which makes sense. Mind, body, soul. And that's how you overcome many obstacles in life. And that's depression. That's death in your family i mean once you really harness mind body soul that's how i actually changed my whole entire understanding and thinking and became a man you know later because i I i feel like i was a late bloomer and once i realized that mind body and soul was pragmatic to me being true to myself and to my god and to my being a part of this planet It honestly propelled me into momentums of just huge strides in life and milestones that I never thought I was going to accomplish until I actually took the time to realize that I needed to connect my mind and heal it and understand it before I went out and loved somebody or um, tried to help somebody else because many great people help others in reality they have all the answers but they have no answers for themselves and that's really a tough situation to be in because you're actually supposed to be helping yourself in this life because you come into the world alone and then in the end you leave alone as well and some of us have incurred situations too that um we had to incorporate things in about our soul and our mind together and we had to learn to separate those things because the soul has to do with you know the holy spirit or god or the divine being and no person in the world can actually live a fulfilled life without a divine being whatever whatever it is that you are worshiping that is part of your soul's wants and needs and That's who you are in life. And it helps with certain situations that arise. You you know, when things get bad, you can turn to your soul for understanding and, you know, use your mind to encourage your soul to pray, to meditate, to let go, to move forward. And, you know, it also, you know, the body is when you put... Things into your mouth, like I said on my bo- last podcast, diet, which is a Greek word that means our way of life, um, everything you put in your mouth is your way of life, and if you're not getting tested to see what kind of deficiencies you have by the doctor, because I think everybody around 30 and 40 randomly should start getting tested for their vitamin counts in their body, because you know... Being low on vitamin D3 can cause cancer to actually grow rapidly and expand. Because everybody in the whole world has cancer. Because cancer is only an abnormal cell that winds up becoming a tumor or a growth. And everybody in the whole world has abnormal cells in their body. And so... When you work though, like when you actually physically work your body out, it encourages your mind to think differently and it, the forcing your body to do, you know, 20, um, the definition of exercise is 20 minutes a day of raising your heart rate up to its highest level. So for men, I believe it's like 160 to 180 or I mean beats per minute. and I believe women are like I believe it's like a hundred to 140. I can't really recall honestly, but it's something like that. And when you start working your body out, it changes your DNA completely to the point where you have new belief systems formed, you have new theories that will evolve. You'll think differently about um, people's shortcomings and you will forgive more easily when you're working your body out. In which I have been doing some research here lately on, you know, like how aging affects us. In reality, most athletes die around 54 to like 60. That's not good, you know, because they work their hearts out to death. And then just, you know, they, I didn't realize we were supposed to rest so much because, and that's why when you see like workout people, you know, uh, Tony Horton, you know, P90X, you know, they talk about rest or, you know, even people like, uh, Dwayne, the rock Johnson, if you ever see him on Instagram or any of his social media platforms, you'll know that dude talks about resting a lot. And he has a body that tells you that, dude, he's getting results more than most people. So honestly, whatever routine he's doing and using, I can guarantee you he's using William James's um, James Lang theory with the mind, body, and soul, because it's one of the most important things you can do in life to evolve as a human being. And thank you guys for listening to the Only You podcast today. I am actually going to be reading to you. I'm um, a really, and I, I mean, I came across this read this time for William James, just going through um, uh, the the public domain, and you can find all of his stuff in the public domain with like, and it's free. And today I'm going to be reading to you some of his writings from the will to believe he's a wonderful writer. He's the father of psychology at Harvard and he is the one that like designed the schooling system there. And they, and Harvard psychology has been at the forefront of psychology since its inception. Thank you again for follow me. In 1890, William James published a highly influential two-volume thesis called The Principles of Psychology in which it actually gained attention from Sigmund Freud all the way over in Vienna and Carl Jung, in which they were the fathers of these movements. And um, William James is also a well-renowned philosopher. We know he's a psychologist. He was um, instrumental in establishing Harvard's psychology department. Um, And which, I mean, which at its inception was tied to the Department of uh, Philosophy at Harvard. I didn't tell you that part. And James himself remained unconvinced that the psychology was in fact a distinct discipline writing in 1892 survey of the field psychology briefer course and that was one of his writings too and this is no science it is only the hope of science he quotes um despite james's skepticism in the ensuing century this hope was fully realized in the in the department he helped to find and initially he was trained in painting <laughs> yeah he was going to be an artist a painter and James abandoned the arts and enrolled in Harvard in 1861 to study chemistry and anatomy which I think everybody should study anatomy when I took anatomy in college, I just cannot believe how many times now that I've gone back and referenced when I'm having ailments, and I can <laughs> see the muscles and the way they work and in your body. It's I think it's important. Um, during an extended stay in Germany after graduating, James developed an interest in studying the mind as well as the body. So in 1872, James was recruited by Harvard's new reform president Charles Eliot to teach uh, vertebrae physiology so in 1875 james taught one of the universe's first courses in psychology and that's when he became the founder and father of it the relations between physiology and psychology is what he taught that day when he first taught for psychology demonstrates laboratory so he could do labs and teach people that away like physically Um, James oversaw Harvard's first uh, doctorate in psychology earned by G. Stanley Hall in 1878. And Hall was noted that James's course was up to the present time the only course in the country where students uh, can be made familiar with the methods and results of German researches in physiological psychology. And that was... um, uh, G Stanley Hall that was saying that um, James's laboratory research on sensation and perception was conducted in the first half of his career and I had told you earlier you know his belief in the connection between mind and body it led him to be the founder of James Lang theory you know that uh, uh, your experiences of emotion arises from physiological excuse me physiological changes in response to external events and we all know that's true you know that the pressures on the outside world always hard press us on the inside and it shapes us and i know you know my rose-colored glasses have been shaped by all the different traumatic situations because you know every person you meet is going through something. That's why it's like, you know, be kind in the world because you never know what somebody else is going through. And this is June, and it is the Alzheimer's Brain Awareness Month, you guys, and I want to talk to you about that too here in a little bit. And, um, inspired by evolutionary theories, James' uh, a theoretical perspective on psychology, it came to be known as functionalism. So, and I don't know if... Uh, any of you might know what functionalism is, but it is the design of an object should be determined solely by its function rather than by aesthetic considerations that anything practically designed will be inherently beautiful, which isn't true. Some things are ugly. (laughs) Um, Thank you guys for listening again. I do appreciate it. James, then, um, after he had published that book, I told you, um, Principles of Psychology in 1890, uh, he moved away from experimental psychology to produce more philosophical works. He is credited as one of the founders of the School of American uh, Pragmatism, which I told you that in the first podcast I had done on pragmatism you know and although he continued to teach psychology he retired from harvard in 1907 and i thought i would share that with you today thank you guys for listening to the only you podcast um this is going to be a great one because alzheimer awareness uh, uh, or excuse me alzheimer's brain awareness month is very important to me and important to other people people out there who have known somebody that had Alzheimer's, you know, and I wanted to tell you about a study that's going on out there that, um, changes the existing ideas of how buildup of protein called amyloid beta is the, excuse me, in the brain is related to Alzheimer's disease. And while the buildup of amyloid protein has been associated with Alzheimer's-related neurodegeneration. Little is known about the protein relates to normal brain aging. To explore the levels um, of the amyloid beta in human brains, the researchers analyzed tissue samples from both healthy brains and brains of patients with dementia. More severe Alzheimer's cases were indicated by higher Brac staging scores which that's B R A A K and that's the I believe that's the Alzheimer's testing um uh it's a uh, yeah BRAC staging refers to two methods used to classify the degree of pathology in Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's patients so that's one to remember um a measurement of how widely signs of Alzheimer's pathology are found within the brain, the analysis revealed that older, cognitively healthy brains showed similar amounts of dissolve, not uh, fibril amyloid protein as brains of Alzheimer's patients. But as the researchers expected, the brains of Alzheimer's patients had higher amounts of insoluble, Insoluble AB febrils. Um, and again, that's uh, that's the uh, amyloid um, beta. That's the AB. Um, the form of amyloid protein that exaggerates to form the telltale plaques seen in the disease, like, you know, plaques in your arteries, <clears throat> uh, the findings challenge the ideas that simply having higher amounts of amyloid protein in general is an underlying cause of Alzheimer's. Uh, I found that to be really wild, you guys. I I would think you would do too. Instead, the increase in soluble amyloid beta may be a general aging-related change in the brain not specific to Alzheimer's, while high levels of febrile amyloid appear to be a better indicator of poor brain health. Rather than Alzheimer's simply involving increased production of amyloid beta protein, the more important issue may be a reduced ability to effectively clear the protein and stave off creation of plaque-contributing febrillary amyloid. These findings further support the use of aggregated or fibrillary amyloid as a biomarker for Alzheimer's treatments. The site in which the amyloid processing occurs has less precursor and enzyme available for processing, which may suggest the removal of amyloid as a key issue during Alzheimer's. Increases the amyloid levels happened during early adulthood and differ by brain region. Further studies include those investigating drugs to possibly break down amyloid should incorporate uh, positron pozist- emission tomography called PET. It's called PET imaging, so that's like brain imaging. Healthy individuals and Alzheimer's patients of a wide range of ages to determine how and where amyloid processing and removal changes in the brain over time. The brain's frontal cortex has more amyloid production compared to the cerebellum during the aging process in human brains, which coincides with Alzheimer's correlated pathologies in late life. Future projects should examine amyloid over the life course in both cognitively normal and Alzheimer's patients with both modulation of amyloid processing of removal of amyloid through monoclonal antibodies currently used in clinical trials for Alzheimer's treatment and thank you guys I wanted to share that with you because you know it is Alzheimer's Brain Awareness Month and I wanted to kind of incorporate some of those findings and some of that stuff with, you know, certain things that are going on during the month to, you know, make people aware of things that are going on. And today we're doing The Will to Believe by William James. I did want to share with you guys, I came across Another study that says that nose picking could increase the risk of Alzheimer's and dementia, and that was neuroscience news, but I'm not going to share that one with you today. I'm going to share with you now The Will to Believe by Sir William James. At most of our American colleges, there are clubs formed by students devoted to particular branches of learning, and these clubs have the laudable custom of inviting once or twice a year some mature scholar to address them the occasion often being made a public one i have from time to time accepted such invitations and afterwards had my discourse printed in one or other of the reviews it has seemed to me that these addresses might now be worthy of collection in a volume for they shed explanatory light upon each other and taken together express a tolerably um definite philosophic attitude in a very technical way where I obliged to give a short name to the attitude in question. I should call it the of radical empiricism. And we learned about um, empiricism uh, uh, last month with um, Mark Twain. And empiricism is the theory that all knowledge is derived from sense experience. I just thought I'd share that with you. in spite of the fact that such belief, excuse me, in spite of the fact that such brief nicknames are nowhere more misleading than in philosophy. I say empiricism because it is contented to regard its most assured conclusions concerning matter of fact as hypotheses, liable to modification in the course of future experience. And I say radical because it threats the doctrine of monism, and that means self. It also is a hypothesis, and unlike so much of the halfway empiricism that is current under the name of positivism or agnosticism, or scientific naturalism. It does not dogmatically affirm monism as something with which all experience has got to square. The difference between monism and pluralism is perhaps pregnant of all the differences in philosophy. Prima facie, The world is pluralism. As we find it, its unity seems to be that of any collection, and our higher thinking consists chiefly of an effort to redeem it from the first crude form, postulating more unity than the first experiences yield. We also discover more, but absolutely unity in spite of brilliant dashes in its direction, still remains undiscovered, still remains a... Uh, it's a german name not sure ever not quite must be the rationalistic philosophers last confession concerning it after all of that reason can do has been done there still remains the opacity excuse me opacity of finite facts as merely given with most of their peculiarities maturely unmediated, and unexplained. To the vast last, there are the various points of views which the philosopher must distinguish in discussing the world and what is inwardly clear from one point remains a bear externally and datum to the other. The negative, the illogical, is never wholly banished. Something, call it fate, Chance, freedom, spontaneity, the devil, what you will, is still wrong and other and outside and unincluded from your point of view, even though you be the greatest philosophers. Something is always mere fact and givenness, and there may be in the whole universe no one point of view extant from which this would not be found to be the case. Reason, as a gifted writer, say, is but one item in the mystery and behind the proudest consciousness that ever reigned. Reason and wonder blush face to face. The inevitable stalls, while doubt and hope are sisters, not, unfortunately, the universe as wild. Game-flavored as a hawk's wing. Nature is miracle all, the same returns not saved to bring the different. The slow round of the engravers, Lathe gains, but the breadth of a hair, but the difference is distributed back over the whole curve. Never an instant true, ever not quite. This is pluralism, somewhat rhapsodical, expressed. He who takes for his hypothesis the notion that is the permanent form of the world is what I call a radical empiricist. For him, the Crudity of experience remains an, an excuse me, eternal element thereof. There is no possible point of view from which the world can appear an absolutely single fact. Real possibilities, real indeterminations, real beginnings, real ends, real evil, real crises, catastrophe and escapes, a real God, a real moral life, just a common sense conceives these things, may remain empiricism as concepts which that philosophy gives up the attempt either to overcome or to reinterpret in monoistic form. Many of my professionally trained comrades will smile at the irrationalism of this view and at the artlessness of my essays and point of technical form but they should be taken as illustrations of the radically empiricist attitude rather than as argumentations for its validity. That admits, meanwhile, of being argued in a technical, a shape as anyone can desire, and possibly I may be spared to do later a share of that work. Meanwhile, these essays seem to light up with a certain dramatic reality. The attitude itself and make it visible alongside of the higher and lower dogmatisms between which, in the pages of philosophic history, it generally remains eclipsed from sight. The first four essays are largely concerned with defending the legit- legitimacy of religious faith. To some rationalizing readers, such advocacy will seem A sad muse of one's professional position. And have you noticed that in my other podcast, you guys, that they, like a lot of um, psychologists, physiologists, and sociologists back in this time, they were actually study, they, I would call them, um, they were theologians, like they studied the Lord, they studied how God worked in the Bible before... They evolved into the theories of why people do the things they do, how they can do the things they can do, and I find it fascinating, and hopefully you do too, and hopefully you're enjoying um, William James this month, because he's a fabulous writer, and I believe that everybody has the will to believe inside of them, and thank you for listening. I appreciate you. Mankind they will say, is only too prone to follow faith unreasonably and needs no preaching nor encouragement in that direction. I quite agree that mankind, at large, most lacks is criticism and caution, not faith. Its cardinal weakness is to let belief follow recklessly upon lively conception, especially when the conception has instinctive liking at its back i admit then that where i addressing the salvation army or a miscellaneous popular crowd it would be a misuse of opportunity to preach the liberty of being excuse me of believing as i have and these pages preached it what such audiences most need is that their faiths should be broken up and ventilated, that the northwest wind of science should get into them and blow their sickliness and barbarism away. But academically, audiences fed already on science have a very different need. Paralysis of their native capacity for faith and in the religious field are their special forms of mental weakness brought about by the notion carefully instilled and there is something called scientific evidence by waiting upon which they shall escape all danger of shipwreck in regard to truth but there is really no scientific or other method by which men can steer safely between the opposite dangers of believing too little or believing too much to face such dangers is apparently our duty And to hit the right channel between them is the measure of our wisdom as men. It does not allow, because recklessness may be a vice in soldiers, that courage ought never to be preached to them. What should be preached is courage weighted with responsibility. Such courage as the Nelsons and Washingtons never failed to show after they had taken everything into account that might tell against their success and made every provision to minimize disaster in case they met defeat. Do not think that anyone can accuse me of preaching reckless faith. I have preached the right of the individual to indulge his personal faith at his personal risk. I have discussed the kinds of risks, I have contended that none of us escape all of them, and I have only pleaded that it is better to face them open-eyed than to act as if we did not know them to be there. After all, though, you will say, why such an ado about a matter concerning which, however, we may theoretically, if I could talk, theoretically (laughs) differ, we all Practically agree. In this age of toleration, no scientist will ever try actively to interfere with our religious faith, provided we enjoy it quietly with our friends and do not make a public nuisance of it in the marketplace. But it is, and it's in the Bible, it says, you know, when you turn away in prayer, God hears you. And there's a movie out there called The War Room, and that's what that's about, you know. You know, Turn your head and pray. Don't pray so everybody can see you. Thank you guys for listening to the Only You Podcast. And this is your host, Lo Jackson, and this is a wonderful read. Um, The Will to Believe is this book's title. But it is just this matter of the marketplace that I think the utility of such essays as mine may turn. If religious hypotheses about the universe be in order at all, then the active faiths of individuals in them freely expressing themselves in life are the experimental test by which they are verified and the only means by which their truth or falsehood can be wrought out. The truest scientific hypothesis is that which, as we say, works best, and it can be no otherwise with religious hypothesis. Religious history proves that one hypothesis after another has worked ill, has crumbled at contact with a widening knowledge of the world, and has lapsed from the minds of men. Some articles of faith, however, have maintained themselves through every vicissitude, which means the ups and downs of life, and possesses even more vitality today than ever before. It is for the science of religion to tell us just which hypothesis these are. Meanwhile, the freest, um, excuse me, competitions of the various faiths with one another and their openness application to life by their several champions are the most favorable conditions under which the survival of the fittest can proceed. They ought therefore not to be lied hid each under its bushel, indulged in quietly with friends. They ought to live in publicity, vying with each other, and it seems to me that the regime of tolerance, once granted and a fair field shown, the scientist has nothing to fear for his own interest, for the liveliness possible state of fermentation in the religious world of his time. Those faiths, will best stand the tests which adopt also his hypothesis and make them integral elements of their own. He should welcome, therefore, every species of religion, excuse me, every species of religious agitation and discussion, so long as he is willing to allow that some religious hypothesis may be true. Of course, there are plenty of scientists who would deny that dogmatically maintaining that science has already ruled all possible religious hypotheses out of the court such scientists ought i agree to aim at imposing privacy on religious faiths the public manifestation of which could only be a nuisance in their eyes with all such scientists as well as with their allies outside of science may quarrel openly lies, and I hope that my book may do something to persuade the reader of their cruelty and range him on my side. And that is just the preface. This is um the will to believe, chapter one, and the recent excuse me, and the recently published life by Leslie Stephen of his brother Fitz James. There is an account of a school to which the latter went when he was a boy. The teacher, a certain Mr. Guess, used to converse with his pupils in this wise gurney. What is the difference between justification and sanctification, Stephen? Prove the omnipotence of God, etc.? In the midst of our Harvard free thinking and indifference, we are prone to imagine here at your good old Orthodox college, conversation continues to be somewhat upon this order. And to show you, we at Harvard have not lost all interest in these vital subjects. I have brought with me tonight something like a sermon on justification by faith to read to you. I mean an essay in Justification of Faith, a defense of our right to adopt a believing attitude in religious matters in spite of the fact that our merely logical intellect may not have been coerced. The will to believe, accordingly, is the title of my paper. I have long defended my own students, the lawlessness of voluntary adopted faith, but as soon as they... Have got well embowed with the logical spirit; they have, as a rule, refused to admit my contention to be lawful philosophically, even though, in point of fact, they were personally all the time chokeful of some faith or other themselves. I am all the while, however, so profoundly convinced that my own position is correct that your. Invitation has seemed to me a good occasion to make my statement more clear. Perhaps your mind will be more open than those with which I have hitherto had to deal. I will be as little technical as I can, though I must begin by setting up some technical distinctions that will help us in the end. One, let us give the name of hypothesis to anything that may be proposed to our belief. And just as the electricians speak of live and dead wires, let us speak of any hypothesis as either live or dead. A live hypothesis is one which appeals as a real, excuse me, as a real possibility to him or her. It is proposed. If I ask you to believe in the Mahadi, whatever that is <laughs> the notion makes no electric connection with your nature. It refuses to correlate with any credibility at all. As a hypothesis, it is completely dead. To an Arab, however, even if he be not one of the Mahadi's followers, the hypothesis among the mind's possibilities, it is alive. This shows that deadness and liveness in an Hypothesis are not intricate properties, but relations to the individual thinker. They are measured by his willingness to act. The maximum of liveliness is an hypothesis means willingness to act irrevocably. Practically, that means belief, but there is some believing tendency wherever there is willingness to act at all. Next let us call the decision between two hypotheses and opinion. Opinions may be of several kinds. They may, they may be one, living or dead, two, forced or avoidable, three, mom- momentous or trivial, and for our purposes, we may call an option a genuine option when it is of the forced, living, and momentous kind. One, a living option is one in which both hypotheses are live ones. If I say to you, be a theosophist or be a Mohammedan, it is probably a dead option. Sorry, you guys. Um, I was trying to find what a Mo Mohamedian, I, I believe that's an Islam person, uh, belonging to, or relating to either the religion of Islam. Okay. Yeah, I was right. I just wanted to make sure. Um, <laughs> sorry. I just wanted to clarify that. Um, it is pop it is probably a dead option because for you, neither hypothesis is likely to be alive, but I say Be an agnostic or be a Christian, it is otherwise trained as you are. Each hypothesis makes some appeal, however small, to your belief. And I believe that's how we get so far away from religious beliefs to this day, is just what he said right there. It makes some appeal, however small, to your belief. So then it actually changes your belief Two. next. If I say to you, choose between going out with your umbrella or without it, I do not offer you a genuine option for it is not forced. You can easily avoid it by not going out at all. Similarly, if I say either love me or hate me, either call me theory true or call it false, your option is avoidable. You may remain indifferent to me, neither loving nor hating, and you may decline to offer any judgment as to my theory. But if I say, either accept this truth or go without it, I put on you a forced opinion, for there is no standing place outside of the alternative. Every dilemma based on a complete logical disjunction with no possibility of not choosing is an option that is forced. And I think a lot of us need to remember that because we get forced into all kinds of options and many different relationships throughout the day we have with people. Three, finally, if we were Dr. Nansen and proposed to you to join my North Pole Expedition, Your opinion would be momentous for this would probably be your only similar opportunity and your choice now would either exclude you from the North pole sort of immortality altogether or put at least the chance of it into your hands. He who refuses to embrace a unique opportunity loses the prize as surely as he tried and failed. Per contra. And per contra means by way of contrast. The option is trivial when the opportunity is not unique, when the stake is insignificant, or when the decision is reversible, if it later proves unwise. Such trivial options abound. In the scientific life. A chemist finds a hypothesis live enough to spend a year in its verification. He believes it to that extent. But if his experiments prove inconclusive, either way, he is quite for his loss of time. No vital harm being done. It will facilitate our discussion If we keep all these distinctions well in mind. Two, the next matter to consider is the actual psychology of human opinion. When we look at certain facts, it seems as if our passional and volitional nature. I want to tell you what volitional is, and that's done of one's own will or choosing deliberately deciding is voltational nature lay at the root of all our convictions when we look at others it seems as if they could do nothing when the intellect had once said it say let us take the latter facts up first does it not seem pre- preposterous on the very face of it to talk of our opinions being modifiable at will. Can our will either help or hinder our intellect and its perceptions of truth? Can we, by just willing it, believe that Abraham Lincoln's existence is a myth and that the portraits of him in McClure's magazine are all of someone else? Can we, by any effort of our will or by any strength of wish, that it were true, believe ourselves well and about when we are roaring with rheumatism in bed or feeling certain that the sum of the two $1 bills in our pocket must be a $100 bill. We can say any of these things, but we are absolutely impotent to believe them. And of just such things as the whole fabric of the truths that we do believe in is made up. Excuse me. The fabric of the truth that we do believe in made up. Facts of matter excuse me. Matters of fact, immediate or remote. As humans said, the relations between ideas, which are either there or not there for us if we see them so and which, if not there, cannot put there any action of our own. In Pascal's thoughts, there is a celebrated passage known in literature as Pascal's Wager. In it, he tries to force us into Christianity by reasoning as if our concern with truth resembled our certain... Excuse me. Let me back up. In it, he tries to force us into Christianity by reasoning as if our concern with truth resembled our concern with the stake in a game of chance. That's horrible. Translated freely, his words are these. You must either believe or not believe in God, and which you will do. Your human reason cannot say. A game is going on between you and the nature of things, which at the day of judgment will bring out either heads or tails. Weight that your gains and your losses would be if you should stake all you have on heads or God's existence. If you win in such case, you gain eternal beatitude. If you lose, you lose nothing at all. If there were an infinity of chances and only one for God and this wager still you ought to stake your all on God. For though you surely risk a finite loss by this procedure, any finite loss is reasonable. Even a certain one is reasonable. If there is but the possibility of infinite gain, go then and take the holy water and have masses said. Belief will come. And stupefy your scruples. Cela vos. Oh, it's, it's a French uh, saying, and it, cela vos fera, cronet et vos abattir, which means, it will make you believe, and dumb you down. Why, should you not? At bottom, what have you to lose.